Um, I always go, you know, check out Wuxtry Records and the 40 Watt. And uh, usually when I meet friends there, uh, we will meet at the grill. This is Tony Waller, and you are listening to episode 226 of the Wait and Sess Last Saturday podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tommy Tomlinson for a Spotlight Series podcast. Tommy currently works at WFAE, Charlotte's NPR affiliate, where he's the host of the fantastic Southbound podcast. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning finalist, a Neiman Fellow in journalism, and author of The Elephant in the Room, which we have the opportunity to talk about at length. He's a UGA grad and has fond memories of his time here in Athens, which we get to talk about some old school stuff. Don't want to hold you back from that. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everybody. This is Tony Waller with the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast, a uh, special um, signature series here. And I am very honored to have uh, eventual University of Georgia graduate, which we'll talk about, Tommy Tomlinson. <laughs> Tommy, thank you very much for taking the time to be here. Oh, my pleasure, Tony. Thanks for having me, man. Um, you know, so just so, I guess for... Uh, Posterity's sake, we're recording this on March 18th, and from the time we set this up about a week ago till today, things have changed. Um, how are how are you and your wife, Alex? Right? Alex. Yeah. Alex. I apologize. How are y'all? How are y'all <laughs> handling this? I mean, both of you. I, I assume both of you generally work from home as it is. Well, actually, I don't. I have a uh, a day job at WFAE, which is the NPR station here in Charlotte, uh, where we live, and I am often at the office. But as of last Friday, I think, um, they've asked us to work from home unless it's absolutely necessary. So I've been home since then. I've got uh, uh, recording gear set up here. In fact, I've recorded a commentary uh, uh, in my bathroom the other day, you know, which is like the best, it's usually the best sound in the house. Uh, is it's, if you ever have to record something, record it in your bathroom. And, um, and so we're here, you know, uh, Charlotte's still a place where you can go out and people have gone out. Um, you know, in my neighborhood is very walkable and there are people walking around and stuff and everybody's keeping their distance. And so my wife and I are here, her mother is living with us temporarily. Uh, she fell a few weeks ago and had an injury, and so she's staying with us while she heals up. Um, and so the three of us are uh, managing. And so far, everything's been been pretty fun. Been it's weird, obviously, but so far everything's been okay. Well, I'm I'm very glad to hear that. You know, it's essentially what neighborhood in Charlotte do you live in? It's called Plaza Midwood. It's a uh, it's so just east of uptown Charlotte. We call it uptown here instead of downtown. So it's a couple of miles from the from the skyscrapers and stuff. It's an old old neighborhood that dates back to the, the turn of the 20th century. And um, uh, lots of people out walking around usually every day. And so far, they've managed to keep doing that. Well, that's awesome. Um, you know, we were talking about Will Leach, who you worked with at Sports on Earth. Uh, he has a, kind of a daily newsletter, and he's talking about the him getting out running and just how often, or maybe it was his weekly newsletter, talking about him running up millage, and he's the millage runner guy. Um, <laughs> you know, out, it's something I've noticed interesting. I live out in South Dakota County, uh, in the county, and we uh, I noticed, I've noticed people out walking a lot more um, than I have in the past. Um, and so... 
maybe we'll get healthier. I don't know. Um, well, I do think people are going to increasingly get stir crazy uh, if they if they can't go out and do their normal things, and so so I think getting out and getting some fresh air, however you can do it, is probably uh, an important part of all this. Yeah. So, just to catch me up, when were you at Georgia? I was there from '82 to '86. My freshman year was Herschel's last year at Georgia. And so they went uh, 11-0 and played for the national championship against Penn State. And then that spring, uh, the basketball team went to the Final Four for the only time in Georgia history. And so I thought it was always going to be like that (laughs) from then on. And it turned out not to be true. Yeah, that is a that's a fantastic mm-hmm. time. I mean, you and I had a chance. We we overlapped. If I recall, you left here in December of '86. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, you and I overlapped one uh, quarter. I guess I I started in fall of '86. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting. And we'll talk about the elephant in the room in a minute. But it, it was like one of those things. Every time I mm-hmm. read about a, something you went to or something you did in Athens, like man. Classic City Sub Shop. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. You know, <laughs> and I was like, that was right beside Papa Joe's, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. and, and so we, I've had a lot of interesting uh, discussions with people talking about your book, talking about the old school places on on Baxter, because I, too, am a refugee of Russell Hall. And, um, you know, having spent freshman year, I think everybody was a freshman had to, felt like. Um, so what was your favorite UJ student memory between your time at the Red and Black and um, you know, getting to see Herschel play and getting to see um, that 83 basketball team play. Um, you know, I was thinking of when you mentioned Russell Hall, so I think the one mark that we left on campus was, so, you know, between Russell and Brumby, there's that basketball court. And uh, when I was there, we had a, my friend John Bauer worked for Domino's. And so he would, uh, work late at night and he would come back with like the pizzas that didn't sell because somebody didn't pay for it or they messed up the order or whatever it was and he would come back at like midnight one in the morning sometimes with all these leftover pizzas and he'd come and bang on our doors and wake us up and I mean and there was a group of about eight or ten of us who were friends and we would go out on the Russell slab and play basketball then you know, in the middle of the night and then eat dominoes and then go back to bed. Well, the students who were actually studying, you know, were ticked off because they heard us out yelling around and bouncing the ball, you know, at 12 or 1 in the morning. And people got furious with us. In fact, one night somebody shot bottle rockets at us <laughs> from their window uh, at us along the basketball court. And so anyway, after we all left Russell, and dispersed, we went back there one day, and they had sprayed, like, in stencil on the basketball courts, like, no games after midnight or something. And I, I thought that was our legacy, you know, that we left there, that we were the ones who forced them to say, you know, you can't play basketball all night at Russell, because that's what we used to do. That's fantastic. I remember seeing that on those courts, um, because... Um, we, you know, I had I had a group of friends. We we played tennis, and they had just finally put lights on those tennis courts on the back side of the um, the parking lot. And right. we, I can remember a lot of nights going over there and playing until 
you know, at time I thought was was late. You know, you're 18 year old from from South Georgia, and you stay, you know, I had to go to bed till midnight if I didn't want to. And I had, I had a similar thing. You know, I had a good friend that worked at the Black Forest Bakery over in Normaltown, and uh, we'd always wait for her to show up with the with the leftover donuts and the same thing. We'd you know we'd go and hang out. Oh man, all. that's even better. Oh well, I don't know. You know, Domino's was a big deal then. Um, but you know, it's it's funny that the that you talk about that um, because that kind of you know we talked about before we got on the the whole idea of of memories revolving around food. In a lot of ways, uh, your book, The Elephant in the Room, it, it feels like it is you grappling with how that has not only affected your life but just the place that, the place important place it plays in your life. Oh sure, I mean a lot of my you know. Uh, most, uh, I guess, uh, the, the memories that are most meaningful to me in a good way and a bad way, uh, most of those revolve around food in one way or another. You know, like that, you know, hanging out with my buddies and, and, and having dominoes late at night and, and, you know, going to the games. And of course, you go to the games or you tailgate and you have this good food and you drink, you know, uh, Jim Beam and Cokes and, and uh, stop back at like McDonald's or Crystal on the way back to the apartment or the dorm and, and get food, you know, to, to take you through the rest of the day. You know, I used to, when we, we all lived in a house together my senior year and we would buy pizzas on Saturday and I'd wake up Sunday morning or actually Sunday afternoon, just in time for the NFL games to start. And I'd pull out cold pizza and leftover beer out of the fridge. You know, and those are our moments that I kind of look back on fondly. And, but then again, at the same time, as I was sad or lonely or depressed or, uh, and I went through all those things, you know, at Georgia that I would eat to make myself feel better in those moments too. And so, yeah, it's all, all these memories sort of revolve around food in one way or another. So can the, the, the concept of the book is, I mean, look, it, it's fantastic and, and it is, is super well done. It's such a compelling story, but it's also personal in a way that sometimes I, I mean, I, my personal preference is not to read a book that uh, that makes me feel voyeuristic. And you do such a good job of opening yourself up. H- how did you how did you get to write this book? Well, I, first of all, I was scared to do it for a long time. You know, once we I, once we kind of came up with the idea for it, um, I didn't write it for like three years because I was scared of just those things, like having to reveal myself in a way that I'd never reveal myself to anybody before, not even the people who, you know, know and love me the best. Um, but eventually I decided that it was sort of worth a story worth telling. And when I decided to do it, you know, I, I spent my career as a journalist writing about other people. And, and when I write about other people often, you know, if the story requires it, um, I've asked them really in a uh, questions about their lives, ask them to reveal very personal things, ask them to tell me about their worst moments. And so I thought, if I'm going to write about myself, I should hold myself to that standard. You know, write about myself in the way if I was, if I was another person, I guess, so to speak, if I was writing about that person, how would I do it? And what questions would I ask and what 
material what I used. The advantage I had, of course, in writing my own story is I knew all the material. Um, and so I could, I could more easily sort of pick and choose. But as I went through the story and thought about, you know, I get to a point where I want to write about something in particular, like fast food, for example. And I'd say, so what are the stories I have about fast food? And I would kind of think about them and pick through them. And then I would tell the story that I thought illustrated the point I wanted to make the best, uh, even if it didn't make me look good, because that's the standard I would hold if I was writing about somebody else. So basically, I, I treated myself the way I would, I would treat somebody else if I was writing their story. And that led to, you know, some places that are probably uncomfortable to read because they were uncomfortable for me to write. So, you know, one of the one of the things that I felt that you did a really good job of, and maybe because it's personal to me, is your cha- your chapter on honesty. Um, and it just, it, I, I will tell you right now, there was nothing about this book that was difficult to read, and that's kind of what I was saying. Um, if you had told me the conceit of the book, I'd be like, "Ooh, I don't, I don't know that I would have picked this book to read." Um, but I just I picked it up based on you know having met you at Avid when you were here and uh, you know Allison Salerno, uh, you know said that I had to read the book so you know you know Allison you don't disagree with her at least openly, um, but the you know so the I, I just found it extremely well done and more importantly it is the, that chapter especially was almost therapeutic for me uh, because I hey I've lived that experience and you know I think. All of, us have, all of us have lived that experience in some facet of our lives or another, um, but you do such an effective job of capturing it. Um, and it's, it's rare that, you know, tear, I get tears in my eyes at that. And I'll just let you know, man, that chapter really hit me. And I, I appreciate you opening yourself up that way. It's, it's really impressive how well you do that. Well, thank you, Tony. And, you know, I thought that was an important part of the book to write because I had certainly lied to other people about what I was eating and how I was doing and all that sort of thing my whole life, you know, to try to convince people that everything was fine when it was obvious it wasn't. Um, but also, more than any, anyone, I lied to myself. You know, I, I, the, the great lie, when you have any addiction or any, any sort of obsession in your life, the great lie is that you're going to start working on it tomorrow. You know, tomorrow is always this golden day where everything will be fine and you can start with a clean slate and all that sort of thing and, and tomorrow never gets here. You know, you you wake up the next day and something happens or something goes wrong and you start the same bad habits all over again. And so, uh, you know, I lied to many, many people over all these years, but mostly to myself. And that chapter was a way to, I hope, sort of come to a reckoning with that. I think you did a great job with it. So, um I, you don't need my validation. I just want to tell you that. Well, it's um, nice. It's nice, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things I, I also know through the book, you did a great job of talking about your career. You start out. You start out in Augusta, um, in some of that time there. But then you become a sub bureau chief for the Charlotte Observer. That you know, I I can remember that newspaper in that particular time, particularly the late 80s, early 90s, just the powerhouse it was, not just in North Carolina, across the Southeast, it, almost at that point, it had overtaken the AJC, uh, maybe because of Char- some of Charlotte's growth, but what was that like? Because you were in what, Rock Hill or somewhere like that? 
Well, I started out, you, you're very kind in saying sub-bureau chief. I guess I was the bureau chief because I was the only one in there. Um, but I started out in a small town called Lancaster, South Carolina, which is about 40 miles south of Charlotte. Uh, the observer had, had a bureau in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is a bigger city. And this was a sub-bureau of that bureau. I was like a subatomic particle, basically. And so um, I was in that one-person office uh, for a couple of years before I sort of worked my way up. And the Observer, you're right, it was a, it was a powerhouse. It, when I got here, they had just won the Pulitzer Prize for covering the Jim Baker and the PTL scandal. And uh, there were people coming here from all over the country, uh, really good reporters, editors, photographers. It was a it was an incredible place to work and to learn and to sort of hone my skills and, and, uh, and just learn from some really smart and gifted, talented, hardworking people. And then you, had, you spent time there. What was your favorite story when you worked for The Observer? Oh, boy, I wrote a lot of stories. I wrote thousands because I was there 23 years. Oh, wow. Um, and I guess the story that jumps out at me, you know, if you ask me again tomorrow, I might mention something different, but I wrote a story, um, and in fact, I'm looking at the picture right now in my office. Um, there was, uh, uh, back in 1957, a young woman named Dorothy Counts uh, helped integrate the Charlotte schools. Uh, and that day, when school started that year, there were black kids who went to other schools in clumps of like two or three or four integrating the schools. But at Dorothy's school, she was the only black student. And there was a, where you park to get out to go to the school, uh, there's a little rise and you walk down this kind of a hill um, to get to the schoolhouse. And that day she was yelled at and spat on and people threw stuff at her and all that sort of thing. Um, and a photographer for the Observer a guy named Don Sturkey took a famous picture, took several famous pictures that day, but one in particular that always haunted me of her in the middle of this crowd of angry white kids yelling at her. And I used to see that picture. They, they, we'd run it in the paper every once in a while. Uh, I'd see it at museums and that sort of thing. And that picture always haunted me. And I finally realized that what haunted me about it is we had written a lot about Dorothy over the, in the intervening years. I knew how she was doing. She had, you know, had, had managed it, had gone on to have a, a really good, solid life and was helping out other kids. Um, but I never knew what was going on in the heads of the white kids in that picture. And so I decided to write a story about that. And so in 2007, which was the 50th anniversary of that, that day, um, I went back and tracked down some of the white kids who were in that picture, and I interspersed their stories with Darcy's, Darcy's story and found that at least some of those kids had felt tremendous guilt and shame over what they had done that day. And so, you know, the story I wrote ended up kind of being about history and about how, you know, what you do in the moment and how that can affect the rest of your life and and all that sort of thing. And that's probably, of the, of the 23 years I've spent at The Observer, that's probably the story that I feel the proudest of. 
Yeah, that's if if I recall reading this correctly, that's also one of the stories that you submitted for your Neiman Fellowship. I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a. I encourage you to go find that, guys, if you are at all interested. It's, it's super well done, and it's uh, it's it's impactful, especially as we even though we're dealing with COVID nineteen, we continue to reckon with. Um, continue to reckon with roles in in race relations in America. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about your ESPN work and working with Will at Sports on Earth. Um, sure. I, I think most people, if they've read your work at ESPN, it's probably the Lorenzen story, the Jared Lorenzen story. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, interestingly about that story is it is um, you, you humanize him in a way that you know, he he had always been a caricature, and probably the you know, the the everlasting memory people have of him. If you just you know drive by a football fan, is you know him in the uh, was it the either arena football, the dragons or whatever. But he is, and of course, he recently passed away. But he's he's such a down to earth guy. I guess that's the right way of putting yeah. it. I had a chance to interact with him on Twitter several times. And, you know, Twitter's by no means nearly as personal as sitting down and talking with a dude. But it's just you do a good job of humanizing him and making the story real. Um, how did that How did that story come about? Well, uh, the, the story is actually uh, in, in a – it's a large reason that I wrote this book. So, so I was right. I wrote for ESPN uh, off and on for three or four years from, like, 2013 to 2017 or so. Um, and one night I was just watching Sports Center, and you know, at the end of Sports Center, they often do a little like, here's you know, something funny from the world of sports. And that night it was Jared, and Jared, you know, he, uh, who had played for people who don't know it, played at Kentucky uh, in the early, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, had actually played in the NFL for a couple of years as a backup for the Giants. Um, but by Dude this has point, a Super Bowl ring. he does. He backed up Elon Manning one of the years they beat the Patriots. And so, um, so this, this time by 2014, he was long. That was long ago. And he was playing for uh, some indoor football league, uh, uh, still playing quarterback. You know, and when he was in the, at Kentucky in the NFL, he was known for being the biggest quarterback anybody ever had ever seen. He played it around usually around 300 pounds. Um, you know, people called him the hefty lefty or the Pillsbury throw boy. Um, by this point in this indoor league, he was clearly 400 pounds or more, but still playing quarterback and still really good. So I saw that little highlight and I thought, man, um, somebody ought to write about that guy. And maybe I'm the one to do it because I'm a fellow big guy. So I tracked him down the next day and asked him if I could come see him. And he said yes. And so I went to Lexington, Kentucky, where he was living. And, you know, we just hit it off right away because we shared so much. We had so much in common about our clothes and our food and the way we were brought up and all the mixed messages we got about food. You know, Jared always, no matter what league he played in, uh, some coach would always make him make a certain weight. And I remember he was telling me about one I think it was like a peewee league or something where he just, you know, worked his butt off to make the weight. And when he made it, the coach said, congratulations. and gave him a plate of brownies, you know? And so he got all these mixed messages about 
food or what it what it meant to him. And he had, had you know, a really successful career as an elite athlete, but he had this other side of himself as a fat guy that he could not shake and was affecting his life in a lot of negative ways. And that's exactly how I felt about myself. And so as I wrote his story and learned how to write the hard truth about him, but still with some compassion and empathy, I could sort of see a way toward writing my story. And so as I finished writing Jared's story, I went to my book agent. He's the one, my book agent had suggested me write about a memoir about all this stuff like three years before, and I put it off. But I decided then was the right time to do it. And so, um, so Jared's story came out. It did really well. I, I believe that it was the, the most read story on ESPN's website that year. And, um, and, then, and then that directly led to my book. Yeah. Well, it's very well done. And I, you know, if I think you really capture, you know, Jared Lorenzo, the not football player, um, and how that, how just he, especially in later times, as he, even as he struggled with his weight, embraced some of that. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. And I was just going to say, as you, as you sort of mentioned, Jared passed away last year. He's 38, and uh, he just never was quite able to get a hold of it, his weight, and uh, it just caused worse and worse problems. And it was, you know, I, I, we had kept in touch. We weren't great friends, but we had kept in touch and, and sort of rooted for each other. And uh, it was just a terrible loss. And he's beloved in Kentucky, especially, and uh, a huge loss for for those folks up there especially. Yeah, and he I mean, every time I had interactions with him, he just seemed like a genuine, decent person. And uh, yeah, I, in a lot of ways, it's weird. You know, I'm, I, I'm not particularly athletic. I played some in high school and, you know, continued to play throughout my 30s until, you know, my body's like, you're just, this isn't, this isn't for you anymore. Um, right. Almost in a lot of ways, he, he was the everyman big guy who, went and did something different and it's just like it makes me think of like charles barkley and a lot of i don't know it's just it's it's, it's personal it was personal it hit, hit me hard when he passed away um yeah so, yeah so i i do one other I want, I want to go back to the book for a second because i definitely want to talk about willie's weenie wagon uh and uh, I, I don't want to i don't want to hide the lead there but i want to let you talk about willie's weenie wagon um i you're not you're not like adam driver right i can i read a short part from the book Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Um, this is in uh, chapter four called Grease is the Word. Um, it's just, it just spectacularly captures not just Willie's Weenie Wagon, but something I'd never really considered but deeply felt. Um, it's everybody needs a third place, a bar or a coffee shop or a bookstore, somewhere to feel comfortable that's not work or home. Willie's was my third place for a lot of years. I went there to meet old friends. I went after getting in trouble with my folks. I took dates there at the end of the night when our clothes were tasseled and our appetites high. I slunk back there after getting dumped. I went when I didn't know what else to do. I'd sit on the hood of my car, and somebody I knew would eventually show up. Man, that is just, it's nearly poetic. Um, because I think all of us can think of a place like that. And it's interesting how, for so many of us, that place was food. 
it's not hard for me, who knows Willie Weenie's wag- Willie's Weenie Wagon, to understand why that place is for you. But just tell us about Willie's Weenie Wagon, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, I grew up in, in South Georgia on the coast, uh, Brunswick, Georgia. And in Brunswick, uh, Willie's is this kind of legendary hot dog place. And um, it, it has become or became certainly for me and for lots and lots of other people, sort of like the social center of town. You know, that's where you go when you don't know where else to go. And if you sit there long enough, somebody you know will show up. And that became sort of, well, during, I guess, the years that I was able to drive, you know, starting when I was 16, that was became kind of a big hangout for me and my friends. And so, you know, we didn't even have to, like, let each other know we we were going there. We would just go there. It's like the the bat signal, you know, would go up, and we'd all just sort of gather at Willie's, and that's I would always sort of circle back around there at some point when I was out and about, just to see who else was there. And plus, they had these in, incredible hot dogs, which I just devoured. You know, I've probably eaten a thousand Willie's hot dogs in my life, um, and so. It was this really great food too, but it was also a gathering spot. And like I said, like the, in the thing you just read, you know, most people have a, a coffee shop or a bar or a bookstore somewhere where they just kind of go to decompress from the day, or just go when where they want to meet friends, or just somewhere they feel comfortable that's not home or work. And um, that was the the third place for certainly my high school years and and then even after I went away when I would come back home to visit family at some point I'd always stop by there just to see what it looked like and 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 all that sort of thing and and they're still around um and when I go down there excuse me when I go down there I still stop by and um and it's just a very comforting place for me I guess is the way I would put it uh, yeah, it's still there. I don't know if you've been down there recently. I, w- I was there at Christmas, um, and it's still kind of there. I was there. I was, I was there in October. Yeah. And uh, and it just feels so good to drive by and see that yellow building and the lights on. I mean, it's, yeah, right there. It's on. Uh, if you get to Brunswick, it's on Altama, across from uh, College Coastal Georgia. I think between like Washington and Sixth or Washington and Fifth. Um, I forget. It's easy to find. Yeah, it's not hard to find. Um, you know, you know, one last thing, having, um, ha- having, having had the opportunity to um, go out and do, um, what, what makes you feel tied back to home, whether that be uh, Glenn County or Brantley County or, or Athens for that matter? Well, uh, you know, in Athens, I have so many good memories there. And I do like to sort of go look at the touchstones of my time there. So, for example, um, the, our senior year, there were five of us who lived in an old house on Oconee Street and uh, just up from what used to be O'Malley's. Um, and, uh, and every time I go back, I'll drive by that house to see, one, is it still there? And two, you know, does it look good? Are people living there? Does it look like a happy place? And that sort of thing. Um, I'll always go, you know, check out Wuxtry Records 
and the 40 watt. And uh, usually when I meet friends there, uh, we will meet at the grill because the grill was somewhere that was around. And of course, always we'll always go walk on old campus. You know, the student center, I'm old enough, the student center was actually built when I was a student there. They, you know, they built, they finished it like my junior year, I think. And so I'll always go to the student center and walk around, of course, go to Sanford Stadium, you know, go out on the bridge there and look around there. And so there's so many of those places that hold fond memories for me and just kind of going back and feeling that something in the air uh, is really important. When I go home to, to where I grew up, uh, the big thing for me is uh, to see the ocean. So, yeah, I grew up on St. Simons, Brunswick, down the coast. And I'll always make sure if I'm down there that I go somewhere where I can smell the salt water and feel the wind in my face because uh, I really miss that because in Charlotte, we don't really have that sort of thing. And, uh, and so that's something that is a real touchstone to me. Well, Tommy, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to chat with me today. It has been an, an honor and a pleasure. If you don't mind, tell, them, tell everybody where they can find your work. I never even got to talk about the Southbound podcast, which I feel bad about. Uh, it's, uh, quick, it's okay. It's well, quick, I'll do it now. One of my favorites, man. Yeah. Good. Well, I do a, a podcast called Southbound uh, for WFAE, the NPR station in Charlotte. It's just conversations with interesting Southerners. So it's people in music, food, fashion, writing, a little bit of everything. Um, and that you can find at WFAE.org. All the episodes are archived there. Um, I, I also have a website that's TommyTomlinson.com. Uh, that's where you can find archives of some of my older stories. That story we mentioned about Dorothy Counts is in there. The story I wrote about Jared is there. Um, all that sort of thing. And uh, I'm at Tommy Tomlinson on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to keep up with what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I will always post anything I write uh, to my Twitter feed so you can find it there. Tommy, I really appreciate you taking the time. Go dogs. Tony, go dogs, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Hey, one of the things that it, it just occurred to me, you keep talking about David Duclos. Any chance Michael Duclos yeah. is his brother? It is, yeah. Okay. Michael and I were pretty good friends in law school. When I saw that name, oh, I was really? like, man, why do I know that name? Uh, and I, I, I'd done a little, um, I went and looked at, at Mike's uh, Facebook page, and I saw David Duclos in there. He's in Indianapolis for now, right? Don't remember that from the book. Yeah, David's also, David also went to law school, and uh, so he was like, I guess he, he started in 86. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. And Michael's his younger brother. And that's what and made so, me think that is I, I knew Mike, I knew Michael had a, cause he always had outlines. Um, and I knew he had an older brother that was a lawyer and had been at Georgia. So yeah. And his parents, their parents moved to Athens at some point and lived there for a long time. Um, in fact, they lived just down the street from Larry Munson for a while. <laughs> and, uh, and then their dad, their dad passed away, I guess last year, year before last. And their mom moved to a, uh, to a retirement home down on Lake Oconee. But, um, but yeah, David, David and Michael are great guys, and uh, just uh, super great people. They're from, I think he grew up in Albany. Oh, in Albany, yeah. And my, yeah, and my, all the guys I hung out with in college, I was this core, core group. They were all 
from Albany. They all went to high school together and stuff like that. And that our group still gets together usually every summer. We go to Athens and hang out for a weekend and stuff. Well, it's uh, I got to tell you, reading the first, especially the first couple of chapters, you know the you know the, the dinner on the grounds and just all the stuff. The I remember the Pizza Hut and uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Pizza Inn in Brunswick. Uh, and I yeah. remember it just all of those things were just such evocative memories for me. Um, good, good. So, I'm so glad. Yeah, but I really appreciate it. And you ever find yourself, uh, you and Alish decide y'all want to come to a football game, please let us know. I, uh, you always have a tailgate spot with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm currently trying to to try to make any connections that I have to get tickets. You know, Georgia and Clemson are playing here. I was next I, year. I, I was gonna, I, I probably should have brought that up since we're nominally a, a sports podcast. Although we don't have shit to talk to talk about right now. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. There's we we talked about playing, but yeah, I've got. Uh, I'm 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 going to start working my connections here and see because all my friends want to come. So uh, so I got to figure out how to get some tickets for that. That but that mean I live like two miles from that stadium. That's I can almost walk. Far. Yeah, I have, yeah. A good, I have a good friend that lives in that neighborhood, uh, a good friend from high school. Um, we've kept in touch online, but I haven't seen him probably in 15 years. Um, and uh, he lives out on that east, you know, east of at the plaza area. Um, uh, oh, great. So, yeah, good. He and his, he and his well, if you ever, yeah, well, if you ever come this way, give us a holler. Same here, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, and Scott will get this. I mean, he's less busy, so he'll get this. Uh, he'll get this thing put out pretty quickly. Uh, he may be in touch for some of these links. I tried to jot them down, and we usually put them in the show notes. But I, I really appreciate yeah, what you're yeah. doing. If I can do anything else, let me know. Yeah, just let me know when it comes out, and I'll be glad to to spread the word. Appreciate it, Tommy. Good talk with you. See you, Tommy. All right, bye. Many thanks to Tommy Tomlinson for joining me. You can find The Elephant in the Room at all bookstores, whether online or in person, assuming, of course, you can find an in-person bookstore right now. It was a joy and honor to get to spend a few minutes talking with him during these interesting times. Keep an eye out for other podcasts and opportunities to chat with us, whether that be via Zoom so we can post to our YouTube channel, and you should subscribe to that, or otherwise. Scott, Will, and I will be back with a regular podcast to talk about who knows what very soon. Go dogs.